0: Hello and welcome to this, the latest in a series of podcasts from Polity. My name is George Miller and I'm delighted to say my guest on this program is Carol Gilligan, who's university professor at New York University. She's previously held posts at the universities of Harvard and Cambridge. In 1982, Carol Gilligan published a landmark book that changed the way we think about women and men and the relations between them. In a different voice was the little book that started a revolution. With more than 800,000 copies in print, it has become one of the most widely read and influential books ever written on gender and human development. If the psychologist's data derived from women didn't fit the prevailing theory of human behavior, Carol suggested, then maybe the theory was wrong. People who felt their voices had been dismissed, often though not exclusively women, felt heard for the first time. In her new book, Joining the Resistance, recently published by Polity, Carol Gilligan reflects on the evolution of her thinking and shows how her key ideas are interwoven with her own life experiences. Experiences that go far beyond academia and bring in insights from a diversity of fields, including music, dance, theatre and literature. Gilligan's work began with the question of voice. Who is speaking to whom? In what body? Telling what stories? About which relationships? In this interview, the concept of voice comes up again and again, not just as a metaphor, an abstraction, but the notion of an actual human speaking voice. Gilligan says modestly in joining the resistance, I am a woman who listens. In this interview, she sums up what she is attending to like this. There's an understory, and always in all of my work, starting within a different voice, my ear has been tuned to the understory, the story that we know and often then don't know that we know. During her recent trip to the UK, I caught up with Carol in Cambridge, where she was leading a workshop with postgraduate students of history on her trademark activity, Listening. I began by remarking that the reader of Joining the Resistance gets the sense that this is a form of teaching that Carol really enjoys, in which she encourages students to overcome barriers that formal education has placed in the way of their pursuit of the questions that really interest them.
1: That's exactly it. And when they ask what I describe as a real question, meaning a question that's real for them, something they want to know and don't know, and, you know, they go out into the world with their real question, they come alive. I mean, it's just wonderful to be around, but it's also unsettling for wow. them because they're not used to doing that.
0: Now I know I have to be I have to be careful in, in using the psychological or psychoanalytical terminology too sloppily uh, with you, but I mean it seemed to me that it was quite a cathartic experience, at least in in sort of in common everyday use of the word, that, that when they you know, you talk about um, classes of graduate students weeping at this sort of moment of, of breakthrough mm-hmm. and
1: occasions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what, weeping because their curiosity had been freed. I mean, really, really extraordinary to be present at, very moving. You know, I I don't think I, sure, you could use the word cathartic, but I found myself using the word dissociation, which again is another psychological word, meaning simply, uh, you know, to have your consciousness split so that part of your experience it's there, but it's outside your awareness. And I thought the tears were their relief in connecting with parts of themselves. And I remember one student said, I don't quote her in my book, but she said, I don't know what my real question is, but I know it's there. And I thought, what a beautiful description of dissociation, that it was there. So, but her access to that part of herself, meaning her curiosity was blocked. And in the class, the class encouraged her to, well, really first just to notice that block and then to become curious about the block and then to find her way through it, which you can't do by just trying to kind of batter your way through. You You have to work associatively. Now, you know, artists know that. I mean, novelists know that. Poets know that. Anyone who works in creative work knows that To go beyond the known world you know to sort of sail off the edge you have to work associatively and you have to go through a moment of fear and the students don't usually think that that's what they would do in a class an academic class but you know I mean if you are in the if you're doing research or any work and you are blocked from access to your own curiosity All you can do is repeat other people's work. So this was a gateway to original work, and they were tears of relief. They were, I I would say, really tears of joy. And, you know, I had established in my class, which, you know, meets it from 11 to 1 in the morning, and it's actually, even though it's a psychology class, it's held in the law school. so It's not in some value, like, incredibly special place or anything like that. I, I had, when... One student one morning just started to speak about her experience of actually being encouraged to ask her own questions and started to weep. And I turned to the students and said, I have no problem with with tears. Do you? You know, everybody looked at me as though, I thought, it's a human experience. You know, here we are. So they said, no, I guess we don't. So my class had created a culture of its own.
0: I mean you touched on something a, a broader point there which I took from your book which was that creative artists novelists playwrights performers have been exploring have been in touch with ideas and feelings which psychology as a discipline took a very long time to come around to
1: you know it's it's uh that's freud observed that and many people have said that if you go back, you, I mean, you can go back and back and back.
0: And <laughs> you go back to the Greeks, at least. Yeah, I was
1: going to yeah. say, you go back to the Greeks and you think, whoa, you know, what extraordinary observers they were of the human emotional world. Well, of course, it's all around them. It's all been all around for a long time. And I don't think anyone has really asked how come. You know, except to think, well, artists are, they're a little bit like shamans or something like that. And I think, no, 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 artists work associatively. You know, and if you work associatively, what does it mean? You simply follow the trail of your own associations. You know, and I could say ocean, and it could have one meaning for you. And go down a completely different trail of associations, even if we both say stormy or blue, or fish, or I mean whatever, then what comes next, what comes next, what comes next? And there's there's a psychological logic to it, but it leads you into a place that probably nobody's gone before. And the human emotional world, our, our psyche works associatively, so you have artists work associatively. And instead of repeating what are the cultural truisms about human psychology, which are this or this, they follow the they follow the footprints of the psyche. And then psychology comes along and somebody says, Well, is it a science? (laughs) You know? That's sort of and everybody says wants to say, Oh yes, oh yes, it's very scientific, meaning objective and not subjective and everything else. And science to a lot of people means maths. So it has to be binary, logic and everything else. Well Our emotions don't work by binary logic. I mean, it's not either you're happy or you're sad. I mean, you can be happy and sad. So you put it in that framework, and it really constrains your ability to capture the psychological world. So you you very laboriously do something, and then you prove it, and you do statistics, and it's significant, and then you pick up a novel. (laughs) You know, I mean, it doesn't even matter who you pick up. Shakespeare, but you could pick up Toni Morrison, or you could pick up Charlotte Bronte, or Virginia Woolf. You think, how come they knew that? You
0: know. I loved your description of your um your frustration when you were a graduate student studying clinical psychology, and you say during the day you had to read these really <laughs> dry case studies which were statistical and and would be objective, and you were you know yearning to read Ibsen and Chekhov because yeah. they were they were telling you things, I guess, which which the case studies weren't.
1: That's exactly it. And the case studies, I mean, I would descri- read descriptions such as, you know, mother was cold and father was distant, as if that was the end of the description rather than the beginning. And then how come she got so cold, you know? <laughs> and what was keeping him away? And there's a whole story there. But there was this, as if that was sufficient to describe a person. And it offended me. It really did. I mean, it felt, you know, a little bit sort of de ho, don, blah. I mean, like, you
0: (laughs) so I mean it would be fair to say that 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 sort of artistic creative side of you has has been a significant nourishment to your to your whole career wouldn't it
1: you know it certainly would be fair to say and and I think what's sort of funny to say is I was the last person who saw it (laughs) (laughs) I mean when I wrote a novel in 2008 and that was a surprise to me and and really a delight to me because I um had always read novels and taught novels. And I think I was the person who was most surprised. And other people said, but well, you write like a you know, like a novelist. Said, Maybe that's true.
0: I wanted, Carol, to ask you to take me all the way back and tell me a little bit about the milieu in which you, you grew up as a, a small child, because you write in this book about an experience you had when you were two and a half, which mm-hmm. is clearly a, a sort of foundational one. But just tell me, before you talk about that just the kind of milieu you were born into.
1: I always think I grew up in some ways in a more European childhood. I don't know if that means to you what it would mean to me, but my parents were first generation Americans and they, and very, very proud of it. I mean, you know, they had lived the American, they were living the American dream in the sense that my father was born in the back room of a dairy store. And he went to he, of course, the first person in his family went to university. He went on scholarship, and then he went to law school at night, and he became a lawyer. And um, my mother's family was more distinguished. Came from a long line of, actually, her mother's father, long line of rabbis. You know that go date back um, in Germany. I grew up in a um, I don't know how you would describe it. On the Upper West Side of New York City, at a time when as children we played in the street, we played in Central Park, we had what from now would look like an extraordinary amount of freedom. I mean, when I was eight years old, I was allowed to take two buses to school by myself, which in New York now nobody would let an eight year old do. My mother really, I think, whether this was a quality in her, but sought out experiences for me, which I am now so immensely grateful for, of finding this modern dance teacher, and then this wonderful woman who taught piano, who lived across the street, and I would have lessons. I was starting at five, for 15 minutes a day, you know, that kind of thing, and then to Hebrew school where I learned Hebrew. And so she fed my love for language and enriched it enormously, and um, I grew up in New York City. I lived there till I went to college at 18.
0: And tell me about this experience you had at two and a half, the Clara Thompson Institute at Vassar College. Oh,
1: I'll tell you that, yeah. I, I, I do want to add one more thing to my childhood, which is I grew up during, I was a child during World War II, and I do think my consciousness is very, very shaped by this because I'm also Jewish, And I grew up in a Jewish family that was very aware of what was happening to the Jews in Europe. And my parents were very active in taking in refugees and helping them get settled in New York. So I think I was very aware of how fragile life is and how something can happen and it's very unexpected and so forth. So when I was two and a half, my mother, who I describe in, in joining the resistance as a forward-looking woman interested in the latest developments. She, and also several friends of hers, hear of this institute that Clara Thompson, she's a psychoanalyst, is running at Vassar College for parents of small children, uh, to use, bring the psychoanalytic wisdom to the parents of small children in the he- in the interest of kind of heading off, you know, later trouble. So, I'm prepa- My mother claims to have prepared me for this. There was a whole rigmarole of what you said to your child, your two-year-old, and off we went to Vassar College. But this institute was, though it was held in the midst of American society, it was organized like a kibbutz, meaning the parents live in one building and the children live in another. And it's possible my mother had told me that. I could have repeated the words. I had no idea what this meant. So I loved the nursery school, I loved my teacher, I remember her name. And it came to bedtime and I thought, where's my mother? And you know, in the kibbutz, they have these metapelet who take care of the children. Well, I was not raised on a kibbutz. So I discover that if you cry loud enough and long enough, <laughs> you know, walls can come tumbling down. <laughs> and so my mother was summoned and an exception was made that she was allowed to put me to sleep. And to sing sing to me, which she always used to do at bedtime, and put me to sleep, which she did. And I th- thought back when I found myself writing about voice and resistance. And I began to reflect on that I thought whoa (laughs) I had learned at two and a half that if you have a voice and you use your voice and you're adamant in your resistance to what doesn't make any sense things can change and I thought that's where my optimism comes from.
0: Was that a realization that came to you much later when you were undergoing psychoanalysis yourself and also writing in a different voice, that you that you then made that connection back to your own early childhood?
1: <laughs> it occurred to me in writing this book, I never had made the connection before. I had never made the connection. And it's always delightful when you make a connection like that and suddenly it seems so obvious. But of course I would write about voice and resistance. I knew about voice and resistance. And always what has puzzled me, if I look back, you know, throughout my life and myself and other people, is an absence of, a seeming absence of voice because nobody loses their voice and a failure of resistance. It's like, how come you didn't resist? And it's interesting because i mentioned to you my mother's several of her friends and people i know children i grew up with went to vassar because it was a kind of au courant thing to do at that moment among certain groups in new york and you know nobody else resisted so that was always the puzzle to me
0: <laughs> i mean we we get a glimpse of you age two and a half and then we we also get snapshots of you as a, as a student and as your career advances but i wanted to ask you about that transition from from girl into woman that adolescent phase that you write about and that you've you've studied so interestingly how how did you experience that yourself
1: well when i began to do the research with girls i mean i'm saying this to you because i think if you had asked me that before i would say i don't i don't know which is of course what the girls say you know because it, it didn't particularly stand out in my mind but when i was doing the research with girls and i saw these frank and fearless girls these outspoken girls who by the way you know artists have known i mean euripides observes iphigenia saying to agamemnon you're out of your mind you know sacrifice me what did you or charlotte bronte or twelfth night i mean you once you see these girls, you see, you recognize they're everywhere. They may not be, they're so little under the radar, but if you start to look, you'll find them. And then I saw them moving into adolescence, becoming young women, being perceived as young women. You know, their bodies changing and everything else. And suddenly, not knowing what they had known a year earlier, or not saying what they really felt and thought. And then it happened, which was tremendously fortunate is when I was doing this research was during the time of my own analysis. So as I was watching the girls go forward into adolescence I was going back through my own life and what I realized was first of all there were gaps in my memory I had displaced events I mean misplaced them in terms of time and place and it was like there was a scramble in my memory as though things had been rearranged. And then I remembered the summer when I was at camp, when I was, I think, 11 or just turned 12, as this time of just enormous joy and exuberance. And then something happened, because I was remember being at camp, summer camp two years later and just being miserable. So I could track my own peer but I don't think I could have done it. There was something so, so illuminating about the experience of being in analysis, you know, and really following my own associations and dreams, I had amazing dreams at that time, which I write about in my book, The Birth of Pleasure. And one dream was of wearing my glasses over my contact lenses. And, well, you're a glasses wearer. So contact lenses correct your vision. And if you put glasses on top of that, you can't see it all because it's a scramble. And I'm wearing my glasses over my contact lenses and everything looks normal. And I go through this thing with it. There's another woman in the dream until suddenly I take off my glasses and I have this sense of shock literally in the dream like I've been struck by lightning. And my head swings around 180 degrees like an owl. And I suddenly say no but of course that's so ambiguous. No meaning no, and no meaning I know. But I say no to what I had said before, which was sort of so kind of the conventional thing to say of not wanting too much and so forth. And I realized after I woke up that when I felt dizzy was not when I was wearing glasses over my contact lenses, which is dizzying, but when I took off the glasses and when I was seeing straight. And that was amazing to me. And then I realized that what happens is, and I write about this, it's as if your vision is corrected. So you're taught to see in a way that's different from how you really see. And you're taught to think in a way that's different from how you actually think and how to feel in a way. And I remembered a woman who, I quote her in this Joining the Resistance, who said to me one day, I asked her, one of these standard moral dilemmas, what should some person do? She looked at me and she said, would you like to know what I think or would you like to know what I really think? And I thought, that's the overlay. And then I did work with young boys and I saw boys moving into that too. And I think, thought, there's an understory and I've always in all of my work, starting with in a different voice, my ear has been tuned to the understory. The story we know and then often don't know that we know.
0: Can you tell me how your ear tuned into that? Is it something you think you were you were simply born with, or did you have to consciously pick up the frequencies, learn how to to hear these overtones and undertones?
1: Well, I told you my mother. (laughs) I mean, in retrospect, what was she doing? She was educating my ear. She was going, I mean, as a young child, she sang to me in three languages. You know, she wanted me to learn languages. She encouraged my desire to learn languages. I learned French, I learned Hebrew, I spoke English. It was music and I, she started me, but then I used to sing in choruses and madrigal groups and I played a lot of Bach on the piano. So you, st- you learn to hear, mid it's your training, right? And then I read literature as an undergraduate, so... And I realized that I, I read, when I read, I hear. And same with when I write. So that has been wired into me in some way.
0: When you talk on the, f- the first page of In a Different Voice about hearing contrapuntal narratives, which I thought was an interesting way of seeing it, yeah. the sort of musical ability to hear different lines in different places but each with their own distinctive character
1: yeah and if you've done any kind of music it's you have to listen that way and so the idea that there's only one voice or the idea that voice is is my some of my academic colleagues used to refer to it as the notion of voice or the metaphor of voice and yeah sure it's a metaphor but there's also a voice Mm
0: Well, tell, tell me about that book, Carol, because it's had a huge influence and, and, and ripples that, that go on to this day and go far beyond the, the academy. Tell me, you say in the book you were sort of writing, or you say and Enjoying the Resistance, that you wrote in a different voice really for yourself. So were you sort of discovering, going back to this idea of a question, were you discovering the question as you were working on it? Or did you know when you started exactly oh, no, no, where, no. You were, where you were going?
1: No, I mean, all right, so I'll create the scene for you. It's 1975 five. We've just moved from one suburb of Boston to another. I have three small children. It's like moving from one end of the world to the other. So I stay home to help them get used to their new school and everything. So I've just done some research. I've interviewed people. I've interviewed as it happened to be because it's not where I started. You know my literary background. So what am I interested in? turning points in people's lives. Maybe because of, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting thing for me. You come to a place and the roads diverge. You have to choose which way you're going to go. How do you choose? Psychologists speak about identity and morality. And those are so, for someone like me, those are such abstract terms. So I think, well, when you're standing at this place and the roads diverge, you say, who's the I in the sentence? Which road will I follow? And what's the voice that says you should go this way or this is the right way to go? And so I thought, okay. So I start interviewing. And I did start it actually with a group of of men, college undergraduates, but then I was interviewing them about the Vietnam draft. What were they going to do? Were they going to resist? And then the draft ends and the Supreme Court legalizes abortion. So I start interviewing. Pregnant people, <laughs> let's just call them that, <laughs> who are thinking about abortion, should they continue or, or end the pregnancy. And I, reading these transcripts of these interviews, this whole array of women, you know, black and white and, and working class and, and college. My friend Dora comes over. I look at her. I said, Dora, you know, this is really interesting. I can understand why psychologists have such a hard time understanding women you know Freud what do women want and everybody's saying I don't really understand women and Eric's saying they don't fit in my chart I mean it's half the population so she says that's interesting I said it's because women start from a, a, a difference they they see the world differently meaning themselves and morality which is what I was they start from an idea that people's lives are connected. Not all women, obviously, and so forth and so on. It was just a t- casual comment. And she said, that's interesting, you should write about it. And I really, I, I love to tell that story because I think it's so important when you just have the inkling of a thought or an idea, if somebody says to you, that's interesting, it means go further. Whereas if somebody says, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So it's so important how you saw. So I'm sitting there. I'm home that year, and I sit down. I put a piece of paper in my typewriter, and I write in a different voice. I mean, this is a, it's 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 a different voice. It starts from a different set of assumptions about the human world. And I would also say at that point, I've gotten to a point where I'm a little bit fed up with what to me is the way in which people are talking about a lot of these issues of morality and so forth. And it wasn't what I thought, or how I saw things. I remember, I write this in my book, women students in my classes at that time would ask a question and I would say to them, that's a great question, but it's not what we're talking about here. I wouldn't even hear that as a crazy statement. And then I started to ask myself, who is this we and what are we talking about? So that's what I was writing into. I thought, and I had this voice in my head that said, you know, if you want to know what I think. And I was home alone and the house was quiet. So I basically wrote what I thought. And it didn't occur to me that it would be interesting to other people. It was really a book I wrote for myself. So... You know, Harvard Press publishes 3,000 copies, and I thought my mother would have to read it. <laughs> you know, my c- colleagues who worked on the same floor. And it was a revelation. And I, I my first inkling of that, and then I write this in, again in the book, is when the manuscript is set out to be retyped, because it's before computers. So I go to pick it up, and the typist is a working class, lives in a working class neighborhood, and I go to pick up the manuscript from her. She's a young woman. And she says, just a minute, I gave it to my cousin to read and I'll get it back from her. And I thought, you gave it to your cousin <laughs> to read? <laughs> you know?" <yeah. laughs>
0: That's probably quite unusual for books from, you know, university presses, isn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah, right. <laughs> and I remember sitting on the porch and sort of like, oh, you know, people who are Whose lives are very different from mine are relating to this book and then I tell the story about <laughs> several months later the uh, the sales rep from Harvard Press takes me to lunch and you know sort of we're waiting for coffee and he looks at me and I realize this is he says to me why is this book selling it's like he doesn't have a clue why is this book selling and I thought about it. the typist and her cousin who lived upstairs so that was amazing to me because I always thought, for reasons I think that my work explains, I always thought my voice was different, meaning wrong, not the right way to see things, not the way you should see things. For them, I remember in school, I used to sit in the back and I wouldn't say a word. And it didn't occur to me that anybody particularly wanted to know what I thought, except maybe my friends. I was always sort of part of it what you'd call an underground group of friends you know of like well what this is what we think of what's going on or my family (laughs) so when i wrote that and got that response it was unsettling for me personally it was not what i expected
0: that's the end of this first part of my two-part interview with carol gilligan i do hope you'll want to listen to the conclusion in which we talk about how the Academy reacted to In a Different Voice, explore her definition of feminism, and discuss her feelings about the future. Meanwhile, you can find full details about joining the resistance on the Polity website at politybooks.com. For now, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.